first reading is from Psalm 22, which can be found on page 409 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 62. Hold it. Yes. 22. Man, sorry, everybody. The song just got me. Okay, page 391, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfil my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Second, the second reading comes from uh, Matthew, Matthew 
chapter 27, and it's verses 45 to 50. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 50. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's thank him again for his word. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for uh, your kindness and mercy to us. We thank you for uh, the love you've shown to us and we see most clearly at the cross. Father, today and over the next few weeks as we survey it again, perhaps for some of us for the first time, uh, for many of us we've done it before, but may it be fresh again for us. Uh, Father, help us to be gripped by the cross. Help us to look upon it and see where the Prince of Glory died and so that we might view rightly our riches. We might have a right understanding of ourself and our pride. Help us uh, to see that love so amazing and divine demands everything that we have. Father, transform us again by the cross, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What does God have to say to a world that hurts? And clearly the world does hurt. You wouldn't say otherwise, would you? Uh, last week I was, uh, I was phoned during the week by UNICEF. They were asking me to turn what was a one-off donation into a, a regular commitment. Uh, they have a global parent scheme for the millions of children who are in need around the world. But it's not like we have to go that far to find hurt. In our neighbourhood, you can walk down the streets of here in Kirribilli and, and you can see the obvious effects of mental illness. And each of us know uh, the anguish that so many of our friends and family and perhaps ourselves uh, try and keep private and hidden and not so obvious, but we know it's there. Now, what does God have to say to a world that hurts? Uh, the French philosopher Stendhal, when he looked at the suffering of the world, he said... The only excuse for God is that he doesn't exist. The only excuse for God is he doesn't exist. In other words, it's a clever way of saying God has nothing useful to say to a hurting world. In fact, uh, he's kind of an embarrassment. There is no excuse for a God when you see suffering. And perhaps you've felt something like that. You know, that it, when, when it comes to suffering, that, that to speak of God, you know, when your friends are suffering, when you're hurting, that, that to, to speak of God can actually feel embarrassing. So, so we excuse him by pretending as though he doesn't exist. He's a kind of topic we can't raise with friends in their hurt and in their suffering because it's just a little embarrassing, isn't it? Uh, a friend of my parents is hurting. Uh, a few years ago I went to the funeral of uh, their daughter, a girl uh, I suppose I knew growing up, age 33. Uh, currently, my friend's parent is, uh, no, my parent's friend <laughs> um, is dying, uh, a combination of lung cancer and a tumour. Now, what does God have to say in that hurt? 
What can my parents say to her? Can God even be a part of that kind of conversation or is it just best for us to, to excuse his existence by silence and pretend he's just not there? So turning at the, to the cross today, we see we don't need to make excuses like that for God. We don't have to pretend that he's not there. As we survey its wonder, the feature I want us to grasp today is and look upon and survey and wonder at is not how the cross affects us immediately, but first of all, how it affected God himself. So we look at the rupture of God. One point I want us to grasp this morning, that at the cross, God is torn apart. Now that point is captured if you've still got Matthew uh, open in front of you, Matthew 27, Jesus' words. He's hanging there dying. In verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now in these words, uh, Jesus wasn't just pointing to something that happened to God, but happened an event that happened within God. You know, the true God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit is ruptured. God is torn apart. Uh, the cry you would have noticed, like those readings pretty obviously fit together, you would have noticed from Psalm, two, Psalm 22 is being picked up in Jesus' cry. Um, you know, Psalm 22 certainly frames so much of the events at the cross. You know, you, you had the, the dry mouth, you had the people going past mocking, saying, you know, let his God save him. You have the divided clothes. So much of Psalm 22 runs through the cross event. It is the song of someone who is, who is suffering unjustly and is crying out, vindicate me. But it's more than that in Jesus' lips. It's God's own cry of, of self-abandonment and self-dereliction. You know, the, the idea is, is perhaps so offensive that people try and water it down. Uh, so people say that you know, because the end of Psalm 22, uh, the suffering gets heard and restored and so, oh, final victory, that's what Jesus had in mind. He had that in mind. Why didn't he quote those words? <laughs> no, instead he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God abandons God. You know, we, we use the term God forsakenness. We, you know, sometimes we, we talk about people's circumstances that have been forsaken. We've got, you know, the, the incredible lack of hope and the hardship. We talk about lands you know, out in the desert, this God forsaken, forsaken place. There's no, no rain and things like that. The, the idea of God forsakenness is that the sense of being handed over, given up, delivered over. Uh, in Romans 1, God hands over, he delivers over, he gives over sinful people to what they want. It's, it's his judgment of rejection. So in Romans 1, he, he effectively kind of washes his hands and says, I'm walking away at a point. You know, one of God's punishments to a rebellious world is just that, delivering us over to our desires. So you know, God says, sure, you want to do things your way, have your greed, have your lies, have your hate, have your immorality, you go and do it and just see what happens. I'm giving you over to it. We're judged by rejection at that point. And if you read through Romans, you get to Romans 8 and the very same word and the same concept is used of the Father's dealing with the Son at the cross. Romans 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all. He delivered him over. Same concept, same word, literally. It's the same word again that's used in Matthew 27 a little earlier in verse 26 when Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. He delivered him over. He says, I'm walking away over there. Now, at the cross, the Father and the Son become enemies as the Son is being delivered up, handed over. 
Yeah, yes, Jesus was rejected by Jewish leaders as a blasphemer and yes, he was rejected by, by Rome as being a rebel and a traitor but the most painful was that he was rejected by God the Father as sin itself. Now 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Uh, and again, Galatians 3.13, he became a curse, speaking of Jesus, he became a curse for us. God abandons God because he takes on your sin and he takes on my sin. That's the pain of the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because as God the Father hands over God the Son, the Father is is casting out and annihilating the Son. And not that the Son at this point is being victimised. Don't misunderstand that. Uh, Philippians 2 makes it clear that, that the Son chose this path willingly. Uh, and the way, if you read John's Gospel, the end of John's Gospel, uh, it speaks of the cross and how it actually acts as a glorifying process for Father and Son. They're actually completely united in going there. But willingness doesn't lessen the pain. You might be willing to submit to an operation, but you know, it's not like you're going to say, no thanks, I don't want the anaesthetic. Willingness doesn't lessen pain. As someone put it, more completely than any other person ever will, Jesus entered into the very human experience, not only of suffering, but of the hiddenness and silence of God just when he needed him most. That's the heart of both the cross and the heart of pain, isn't it? You know, when, when you're in the midst of it and God doesn't seem to be there, it looks like the Father's walked away. Well, that's the Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus' death is not simply the death of God, but it is death in God. It's a genuinely new experience of suffering for God. It's not just the observation of suffering. God had done that for ages. He'd seen that in humanity. And it wasn't just the suffering of being rejected by others. Humanity had been doing that to God for ages. But now deep within himself, God suffers. God suffers in a place that no one person could have had access to, but he, he opens it up to be damaged there. He chooses this deep suffering. God the Son is he's suffering and dying on the cross, abandoned by the Father, and the Father is suffering in having to reject himself. Now, we survey the, the, the cross in wonder because it's not just something that occurred for us. God forsakes God to death for the first time ever. The perfect relationship, Father, Son and Spirit, gets ripped apart. And I think we have to wonder at this event uh, because our minds don't really grasp it. There there is no illustration that really does justice to it and captures it. I've tried, I've been thinking of some and they're just not working. I mean, you can come up with one for me later on if you think one grasps it. But, you know, if I told the story of a parent giving a child over, abandoning a child, sure that would capture something of the pain, but it, it would distort the cross. Because in the end, it doesn't do justice to the kind of active and willing and intentional uh, nature of both the father and son to enter into this abandonment. Now, I could try and tell a story and, and kind of pick up a story about you know, having to rip internal organs out, something gruesome and that kind of thing, which, again, would capture something of the shock value of what the cross is all about, but it reduces it down to just being really physical, when actually the way the gospel writers do it is it's, the physical is actually the least of the problems. 
You know, I could come up with a story and, and tell of you know, a marriage where a, a beloved partner is, um, is left uh, and there's the emotional and psychological pain uh, and that's a helpful understanding but again it, it fails to understand that this is actually with God it is one being ripped in two not two that became kind of united but then re-separated. Now, at this point every illustration falls short of the amazement of what is happening at the cross the amazement of what Jesus is saying in calling himself forsaken by his Father. In the end, we are left to marvel at the cross, the cross that transformed God by rupturing him. The cross that also powerfully transforms us. Now, as we marvel upon it, two areas where it transforms us if we grasp it and survey it properly. It will transform our priorities and it will transform our suffering. First of all, it transforms our priorities because self-preservation no longer becomes our top priority when we grasp the cross. Again, this week uh, we've been looking in Connect Group at the Sermon on the Mount and you know you can't walk away from looking at the Sermon on the Mount without feeling challenged. Uh, Matthew 5 finishes with Jesus' challenge to not make self-preservation your top priority. You know, someone strikes you in the cheek, offer him the other one. Uh, someone asks for your coat, give him your shirt as well. Pray for blessing on your persecutors, love your enemies. Uh, and in 548, the, the finish of that part, Jesus points to this as imitating the perfection of God the Father. And you go, really? Is that, is that what it is to imitate God, to be perfect like God the Father is perfect? Well, yes, at the cross that makes all, all complete sense, doesn't it? That, that perfect lack of self-preservation that the Father Uh, displays there at the cross that invitation to copy and be like him to stop making self-preservation the top priority. Because at the cross, the Father and the Son, God willingly enter into a a degree of suffering they could have avoided. You you may have noticed as I I ran through some passages earlier what motivated them. 2 Corinthians 5, it was for us. In Romans 8, it was for us. In Galatians 3, it was for us. Seriously, we can get this, can't we? Yeah, it was for us. God's, God's lack of self-preservation is just beautifully counterintuitive. You know, that's what he's asking of me in Matthew 5, that if I grasp the cross and what he is like, self-preservation stops being my number one priority. You know, so often we, we're inclined to put up boundaries to protect ourselves. You know, the Australian understanding of the home uh, being the castle yeah, that's exactly that, isn't it? We, you know, we, we come home to protect ourselves, to keep the world at bay. We put limits on who we would like to have in our home. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that, you know, leave your houses permanently open. I know Kirribilli's a very nice suburb, but, you know, let's be realistic, you can still put a lock on. But in all the, the boundaries we establish in life, whether they're physical like the home or, or the kind of more relational boundaries we put in, be careful about our motive. Now, God sacrifices his self-protection in order to love us. A series of weekend away talks I heard years ago were, was on Jesus' command to love your neighbour as yourself. And the speaker went on to, to talk about what's that going to look like in practice. Well, we need to work at loving ourselves was his lesson. And the talks went on about how we might love ourselves better and better and how we might protect ourselves from the demands that other people put on us. And I couldn't help thinking that they'd missed what Jesus was saying. Now, Jesus' command assumed we'll love ourselves, 
The challenge is to bring some of those barriers down for others. You know, right understanding the cross says self-preservation isn't the top priority. Now, yes, it's right to save money, but, but if we can't be generous and give to the poor and needy, is it because self-preservation has become our number one priority? Yes, we need to make sure we're not overwhelmed uh, by, by family or friends or, or people in need. You know, yes, we need to make sure we have time to, to recover uh, and function. But if family and ourselves are the only ones we ever have time for and there's no place for people who are perhaps in need, is it a sign that our barrier is a little too high? Because you know, the cross frees us from that. That's why a man I know could stay silent when being slandered around a church because he knew the transforming power of the cross, that he didn't have to protect himself from everything. Actually, he could love other people. But more powerfully, God being torn apart transforms suffering. He transforms it to make it bearable. I think one of the reasons we fall into silence in suffering is it seems like it's unbearable and if you say anything other than that you you either feel like you're lying or you're just being really trite and kind of hallmark platitude kind of level. Now that's the backbone of the pro-euthanasia argument. You know, for all that kind of careful language of of dying with dignity, uh, the push for euthanasia is, is driven by fear. You know, a fear of pain and a fear of decline and a fear of dependence and a fear of abandonment and a fear of death and, you know, and a fear that suffering is actually unbearable. You know, the suffering of God at the cross says otherwise. You know, it says that suffering is bearable when you patiently trust the one who has suffered and when you patiently trust the one who overcomes suffering. Now, when you listen to the cry of dereliction, we can say to those friends who suffer, we can say to ourselves with real honesty, God actually understands suffering. And he understands suffering without without being guilty of anything. For many people in times of hardship and pain, uh, like that of of the friend of my parents, uh, they feel like God has nothing to say to them because he doesn't understand their experience of pain. Well, yes, sensitively and gently, but my parents can say to my friend, God does understand suffering. William Temple put it, Men say there cannot be a God of love because if he looked on the world, his heart would break. And the church points to the cross and says it did break. Men say it is God who made the world and it is he who should bear the load. And the church points to the cross and says he did bear it. Although Christ suffered once for all on the cross for our sins, he still weeps today with those who weep. He feels our pain. He enters into our sorrows with his compassionate love. Suffering is transformed to be bearable because there is one who truly understands. Uh, In a letter by um, 13 palliative care specialists recently published uh, in the paper, uh, the deep sadness of euthanasia was actually addressed. They also observed that contrary to popular opinion, People request death mainly due to despair and loneliness, not the pain itself. Their letter was was really helpful when I talk about how they did a great work, uh, I suppose, and said, the the time before death offers unique opportunities for psycho-spiritual growth and allows for healing even without a cure. Now, that's the great work that they are doing. We, we need to kind of respect that work and trust them uh, as esper- experts in the area. But, but actually, the cross says we can go even further than that. 
And if the major reason people are you know, requesting that is despair and loneliness, we can say there is always one they can turn to in despair who understands. We can say to a hurting world and suffering friends, there is one who understands. And even more, we can say it is therefore bearable if you follow Christ's model of patient trust. Because anyone who follows that model, ultimately there is vindication, there is freedom, there is hope. Real hope is what transforms suffering to be bearable. So the son's model, you would have noticed, is, is that he keeps trusting the father even in the agony of the cross. You know, the, the father is still his God, my God, my God, he says. He still commits his spirit into the father's keeping. He doesn't at the cross rail against his father in rejection. Now, all that, that perfect and, and patient suffering is vindicated because three days later he rises again. And, and that experience of trusting God patiently, even in the hardest times, and ultimately finding vindication at the resurrection, well, that, that's there for, for all who turn to the Father, even when he seems silent and hidden. Now, to paraphrase what Hebrews 2 talks about, Jesus shares in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy the one who held the power of death. That is the devil. He destroys the devil and therefore frees everyone who lived their lives in slavery to the fear of death. Now, we don't need to pretend God is silent because his rupture transforms suffering to become bearable. We can say to our friends and to ourselves, there is real hope if we keep patiently trusting. Now, what has God got to say to a hurting world? Well, he's got lots to say. He's got plenty. Now, he has been changed by suffering and he changes our suffering. Now, we're surveying the cross this morning. In a moment, we, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper, share a tiny remnant of a meal. Not to fill our tummies, but to remind ourselves of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice to pay for sins. We, we eat and drink to remind ourselves that he is returning. We eat and drink as unworthy table guests, but, but more, I suppose I want us to focus today as we eat and drink, we remember that God is torn apart for us. God is forsaken that we might be transformed and welcomed. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite the musicians up and we're going to sing. As we sing, uh, bread and wine will come around. But let's pray. Now, Lord and Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for what you were willing to go through for us. We thank you that you were willing to open yourself up to suffer, that through that you both understand our suffering, but you make it bearable and you offer hope, real hope, beyond any suffering we face. Father, thanks that self-preservation was not your greatest priority. And we marvel in wonder at you this morning. Help us always remember the glory and the shame of the cross and the God whom we serve who loves us so much. In Jesus' name, amen.